You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. And, and the reason I do this each week, we read the whole thing or read a whole bunch, is it's just, it's good to keep context in front of us. It's good to keep the Word in front of us. If I, if, if I just got up here and read 1 Corinthians to you, you'd probably be far better off than the mumbling I go through. But uh, that's not what you're paying for, so is that how it works? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. <laughs> Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that, it may be, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Does it seem sometimes when you're going through a difficult, difficult patch in life that nobody understands? Does it, it can seem that way. And often it can seem that way because those around us who should be showing the most compassion are either oblivious to what we're going through or maybe they contributed to it. And so sometimes that's what ends up happening to us. And we're going to look into a section of Scripture now that deals with that very thing. But before we do that, we talked about grumbling last week. That's one of the things. And I, as I finished up and, and there were questions afterwards, it seemed like there were still some, some questions. So I, I did a little bit more study and I, I have what I'm going to call some final murmurings about grumbling. So, the effects and characteristics of murmuring and grumbling. So let's just kind of, we'll, we'll, we'll wade through this and if there are any questions, please, please ask them. But the effect that murmuring and grumbling can have on an individual and by extension their family and those around them is very significant. It can actually lead to serious problems and has been known to be the early stages of a breakup of even a church or a relationship, things like that. Um, and so as I was looking at this and studying it more, unfortunately, 
or fortunately, I guess, it convicted me. I realized after looking through this carefully, I struggle with a bad attitude. I struggle with murmuring. I tend to see the negative. If the glass is half full, some people say it's half full, some people say it's half empty. I just know somebody's going to have to wash that puppy when it's all done. And it's probably going to be me. So that's kind of been my attitude. So let's look at some of the characteristics and effects. Number one, murmuring ignores God's potential. The report of the ten spies, we're in Numbers chapter 14, uh, reflected a godless perspective. God had opened the sea to save them. He had opened the heavens to feed them. And He provided rocks. He gave them rocks to provide water for them. He had defeated mighty armies, armies throughout their wilderness trek. He had freed them from perhaps the most powerful nation on the planet at the time, the Egyptians. He could deal with any problems the new land might present. Wouldn't you think the Israelites would have thought that? That he brought us through all of that. There's nothing he can't do. But murmuring can blind us to the potential God has. Second, murmuring is born in the context, or it can be born in the context of a bad report. Sins of the tongue that spread negative reports, beguilement, gossip, slander, and a false witness, create an environment in which murmuring can thrive. Some people are always eager to hear negative things so that they can have something to complain about. News companies, what do you see them most often giving you the news about? Bad things, messes, destruction. And, and we need to know about that, but it seems like they've got to work at coming up with something positive. And even when they do that, sometimes there's a negative slant on it. Murmuring is born in the context of a bad report. Number three, a murmuring spirit, and this is one of my biggest problems, is quick to jump to the wrong conclusion. Quickly can jump to the wrong conclusion. Um, the, the grumbling Israelites blamed God for their situation and even started planning to return to Egypt. Let me read that to you. Numbers chapter 14. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? They began planning to go back to where God had just delivered them from. How often is that in our lives? That we want to go back to what God has delivered us from. We don't see it that way, maybe. But they um, murmuring distorts good judgment. It, it, can, it, can, it can mess up the most logical and reasonable of people. It can cause them to think wrongly and to act wrongly. Number four, murmuring, bad judgments are spawned in the atmosphere of murmuring. The murmuring Israelites decided it would have been even better to die in Egypt. They even attempted to stone the ones urging them to stop grumbling and trust in the Lord. Boy, you got to be careful how you, how you try to help your friends and you know, no good deed can go unpunished. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. They wanted to stone those who were encouraging them to trust God. Number five, murmuring leads to self-pity. Murmuring leads to self-pity. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. That's verse 2. Murmurers often feel sorry for themselves and focus on how they have been mistreated, how they have been misused, and how they have been let down. And I can just, I can connect with this in my life. When I'm 
in my worst mind, whining, complaining mood, these are the things that happen. Number six, murmuring thrives in an atmosphere of fear. Twice Joshua and Caleb exhorted the people not to be afraid in verse 9. Uh, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey, said Joshua and Caleb. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Twice they tried to encourage the, the uh, Israelites not to rebel, but rather than listen to reason, the Israelites were ready to elect new leaders who would overthrow or oversee their rebellious plans, help them with their rebellious plans. And then... Uh, Number seven, I kind of jumped to number seven. Murmuring left unchecked usually breeds rebellion. So number eight, the end result of a murmuring spirit is a general atmosphere of dissatisfaction. Criticism and complaining led to discontent. By the end of this episode, Israel was dissatisfied with their God-given lot in life. Majority reports are not always trustworthy. Just because a lot of people are murmuring doesn't necessarily mean they are right, but we tend to wear fear and insecurity close to the surface, so murmuring has no trouble attracting a crowd. My dad used to have a saying about people who grumble and gripe all the time. He said they wouldn't be happy if you hung them with a new rope. Think about that. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny, but it was just the most negative of negatives. No matter what you do, for some folks who are in the murmuring vein, you can't please them. You can't please them. So there's a proper way. There can be, there's probably a number of ways, but here's some ideas about how to keep our complaints constructive. Pray. Start with prayer. Stop in what you're doing and go to, go to the Lord in prayer. When, when you know, when you're beginning to um, evince or evidence a murmuring spirit, a griping, grumbling spirit. The psalms, psalmist often complained to God about his problems. However, he never lost confidence in God's faithfulness, power, and love. In praying, we should commit our problems to God's care and willingly wait for him to discuss, to direct us to his solution. Number two, take your complaints to someone with the authority to rectify the situation. Sharing problems with those who are not a part of the solution only stimulates murmuring and makes resolution more difficult then it it's actually becomes gossip in some cases. Assure the person in authority of your loyalty and desire to help. Open your mind to their perspective. Studying the scriptures, being careful to hold yourself and everyone around you as you can to the authority of scripture. Number three, direct others to sources of help. When people come to you with problems, encourage them to go to someone in authority or someone who can help them with the situation that they are in. Um, and, and frankly, in some of those situations I, I've been in, when I've tried to do that, direct people to some, they didn't really want help. They just wanted to gripe. And so you have to be able to discern that as well, um, whether someone really wants help or not. While it never hurts to be a good listener, many times others are looking for allies in their murmuring. Don't get caught in the middle of a conflict if you have no opportunity to bring the disagreement to an end. If you know you're not part of the solution to the problem, then you can't help. So murmuring loses its, its basis in those kinds of situations, and it can actually be dissipated. It can be helped in that way. If you can direct people to places where they can actually receive help if they're serious about the situation they're in. So um, I just wanted to kind of go through those so that there, we weren't lost in last week. Just I was complaining about murmuring, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Murmuring's bad, it's evil, murmur, murmur, and don't do it. So, but, so, 
Three things. Pray, take them to authority with someone who can rectify and direct others who are murmuring to sources of help. Be that help yourself if you can. But if not, find some help for them. Um, and that can dispel and stop the murmuring and create a, a, a spirit and an attitude of correction and of um, obedience to the Lord. Are there any compl complaints? <laughs> are there any complaints about... Are there any questions or concerns about that? Good, good. So I don't... And I'm not giving that because I see that in this body. It was just I felt I kind of left you hanging last week with just said, murmuring is bad, don't do it. Okay, moving on. So let's, let's uh, we were in verse 12. We ended up in verse 12 last year. Last year yet, so it seems like. Last week. Yeah. I'm having a great morning. I only had one cup of coffee. That's the problem. Pardon me? Coffee, yeah, that's it. I'm going to blame it on the, the beans, coffee. I'm, I'm going to murmur about coffee. So Paul said in verse 11 that one of the reasons the things happened to the Israelites and that they were recorded was ex so they would be examples written for our instruction, he said to the Corinthians, and for ours, whom the ends of the ages have come. And then he, um, let me make sure I know where I'm at here. Yeah. They were written for our instruction. They were written for your instruction, Corinthians. They were written so that you would have some tools, some information, some anecdotal as well as biblical information so that you would know how to respond to the situations you're in where you're troubled with idolatry. You're troubled with, you're struggling with this idea of, of the weaker Christians in your, in your body, unable to um, understand how to deal with the idolatrous situations and secondly, so that you won't cause them to stumble. And then he says this, Therefore, take, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So he addressed their overconfidence. Yes, yes. And, and that's a, a good thing to think. Because we don't know the date. There are certain things that have to be fulfilled. But the fact is, we are in the end of the ages. It's just that it's, it seems to have become a long age. So, as it could be said... Expect Christ to come back any minute, but plan like he's going to come back in 100 years. So be ready, but be vigilant. So that's what Paul was doing. I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I take it back to the, to the old, your father's going to come look at your room in a minute. Okay, I'm going to get this puppy cleaned up. So it's, it's a good encouragement to be paying attention, to take stock, to take, to take stock in what you're doing. So, did that help? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we're in the end of the age. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, ages have God's determination as to when they begin and end. We can be dispensationalist, I guess, if we want. But, <laughs> you know, I don't know when God's going to dispense with some things and, and start something new. So, therefore, let him who take, thinks he stand take heed that he not fall. No temptation has ever, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide a way of escape also, so that you will, you will be able to endure it. So, what's the first thing we learn about temptation and testing? 
Is there any temptation that can come into your life that no one has ever experienced in the history of the world? Not possible. Secondly, is God able to handle that temptation? Is the Holy Spirit as good as he was back in the beginning when he first started helping? Can he still meet the task? Will you ever be tempted beyond what you are able to bear? Okay, we've got to tell ourselves those things. We got, I'm not talking about the positive power of positive speaking. I'm talking about believing Scripture. Will we ever be tempted beyond what we're going to be able to bear? No. Now, it's going to seem like that sometimes we're in the middle of the temptation. Will there be a way of escape? Yes. Will you be able to endure it? Yes. Those are good things to be remembering. With all the warnings and chronicling of Israel's failures, maybe, and Ron brought this up last week, maybe the Israelites, the Corinthians, excuse me, were assuming that they couldn't get anything right. They couldn't live victorious. They were worthless. They were scum. They were just useless. A flash in the pan. The Corinthian flash in the pan. Well, without the Lord, that would be a correct statement. But, with, but Paul wants to encourage them now that they, the Corinthians, can indeed live victorious lives. Many times when we struggle with something that comes into our lives, we have this idea that no one else has ever felt this feeling, has ever been assailed by this difficulty, has ever had this kind of problem. And it's very, that is very far from the truth. And it is a tactic that our flesh and that Satan will use to get us into a corner. It causes us to turn inward and to pity ourselves. We will not see the door that the Lord has opened for us if we are somewhere in the room facing a corner. Oh, woe is me is a pitiful, a pitiful excuse for a child of God. Now, I say this knowing that at some point all of us in our lives have gone through some horrifying things, some difficult things, some heart-wrenching, embittering, possibly, things. But he says, it's not overtaking you, but that's not common to man. And he says, I am faithful. I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And I will provide with the temptation the way of escape. By the way, that's significant. Not a way. The way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Paul is in this. This may sound cold. But the fact is, Paul is in this verse reminding the Corinthians and therefore us that everything that can possibly happen to you, Corinthians, and to us is common to man. God has brought people through the most difficult situations and circumstances throughout history, and He will bring the Corinthians and therefore us through anything that He allows into their lives and into our lives to strengthen us, to make us more usable, to make us more like His Son. Isn't that what the predestination it talks about in Romans is about? It's conforming us to the image of His Son. Well, what did Jesus go through? Did he go through some difficult things? I know this sounds like basic Sunday school. Well, that's what we're in. Basic fourth grade Sunday school. But sometimes the basics are good to get a handle on again and again when we're going through a difficult time in our lives. It, for nothing the Lord brings into our lives. And he brings it into our lives. He allows it into our lives. Nothing is an accident. It's designed to cause us to trust. Some of the things designed to cause us to trust him more. It's designed to strengthen us for future difficulties. It provides a testimony that others can see and draw strength from. And when the test comes, it is our delight, maybe not at the time, but is our delight in the grace of God to resist, to endure, and to get through the temptation. 
And you've all come through them. You've all come out the other end. And in some cases, it wasn't until years later that you saw the benefit. And maybe some of them you don't see the benefit yet. But there is benefit. There is God's grace. His bringing us through those difficulties are always for a purpose. And sometimes we don't see the purpose, but those watching see. They learn. They understand. They see a Christian holding up through the most difficult of circumstances. It may very well be, you, through the scriptures, what brings them to the Lord. <laughs> the word for temptation connotes both that and the concept of a test. When Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, both God and Satan <laughs> participated in that test. Both God and Satan participated. The intention of the test from God's perspective was to prove the righteousness of the Son of God. The devil's intention, however, was to cause Jesus to fail. It's the same in our lives. The devil's intention is always, the flesh's intention is always to cause us to fail. God's tests are never an inducement to sin. James cautions us to never say or believe that the tests that God brings into our lives are temptations from God. And I'm going through one right now. There we go. So James cautions us, cautions the Corinthians, well, he cautions his readers, and therefore by extension the, the Corinthians if they read his letter, and us never to say or believe that the tests that God brings are temptations from God. James 1, um, James 1, 13, I believe is where it's at. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when, when, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. When we struggle with a temptation, it's latent in our spiritual DNA. I don't know how else to word it. It is not God bringing a, a, a testimony-breaking situation into our lives. It is our own internal problems causing and enticing and bringing it. God never tempts us. He cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. He tests us. It's a different word. The trials that God allows us to go through, as mentioned before, are to test to strengthen us. Now, and I forgot to grab this verse, but Peter talks about it being a test that, that, uh, that takes away the, the, the dross from the gold, the faith, the gold faith in our lives, and reveals it, reveals it for what it is. As we are proven, and it's a delightful thing after it happens, to be proven as people who love God, who endure tests, who endure temptation, Temptation of the flesh, test that God brings, and we come out the other end with more of the dross removed, refined as it was in the refiner's fire. How, how, um, how valuable would gold be if it was never refined? If it had all the impurities in it that it came with from being uh, mined and extracted from the ground, it wouldn't be anywhere near as valuable. It would have very much less value. And so when God refines us, it becomes, our faith becomes more valuable, more beautiful. Now, it may not seem like it at the time. It may be uncomfortable. It may seem intolerable, but it's not. It may even seem like it's a disaster. 
But God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to endure. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that there will always be the way of escape. No believer can claim that he was overwhelmed by sin or that the devil made him do it. The devil made me do it. Any temptation or test that we are put through will not be stronger than the resources we have through grace, through the Word of God. I might add a word in here. We need to be watching out for each other. When we sense, when we know that one of our brothers or sisters is going through a difficult time, that's the time to gather around. Actually, the time to gather around is always so that we know each other well, so that we know how to help one another. We know how and when to help one another. But <laughs> any temptation or test that we are put through will not be stronger than the resources we have through grace. The word, through, the word for the way is a Greek form that indicates there is only one way. The one way to deal with temptation is to go through it. Not to sidestep it, not to ignore it. God will take us through by helping us to be able to endure it, the Scripture says. When Jesus was tested in the wilderness, he met those tests head-on with Scripture. He didn't use the power of positive thinking. He didn't think some yellow brick road idiocy. He used Scripture. He quoted Scripture. He used Scripture. He endured those tests in the power of His Father. We are cautioned, or I should say counseled by the Lord Jesus, to pray that we do not come into temptation in Mark 14, 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's not to say that we won't. But when we do come into temptation, our first response is to pray. We turn to the Father and ask Him to bring us through this temptation. Second is trust. Based on what we just read, is this temptation common to man? It is. Is God faithful in this while I'm struggling with this? Is He still the faithful, same faithful God He was yesterday? He is. Will He allow me to be tempted beyond what I can endure? No. Will I be able to endure it as, and go through the way of escape He's provided? Yes. We pray believing that our prayer will result in the Father helping us. We are reminded in Romans chapter 8 that God has purpose in everything that comes into our lives and that He will work it to our good, even He will work to our good, even the most difficult of circumstances that we are enduring. Finally, we trust and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Four, consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We don't want to grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And I think for most, if not all of us, that's true. I have not shed any blood in my resisting and striving against sin. Jesus himself endured more than we will ever endure. He truly understands our trials. Do not let anyone ever tell you that he does not. And he will make a way for us to escape. The Greek word suggests, this Greek word, the way of escape, doesn't suggest a nice, easy, dogwood line path to, into light. It suggests a high mountain pass, and it's often the only way to get away from an attacking army. Bible commentator Willem, William Barclay puts it this way. He said, with the, with the temptation, there is always a way of escape. The word is vivid, ekbasis, ekbasis, Greek. It means a way out of a defile. A mountain pass. The idea is of an army apparently surrounded and then suddenly seeing an escape route to safety. No man need fall to any temptation, for with the temptation there is the way out. And the way out is not the way of surrender nor of retreat, but the way of conquest in the power of the grace of God.
Temptation and testing itself, keep this in mind too, that is not a sin. When you are tested, when we are tested and tempted, that is not the sin. There's no sin in being tested. When we entertain temptation, when we put ourselves in the way of temptation, and when we surrender to temptation, that is sin, and it need not be so. At market, a little boy was standing by some candy. He looked like he was going to put some in his pocket and walk out the door. I actually have had, the, I, I, can, I can relate to this. I had a guy on the glove aisle in my store, and he came back to this one pair of gloves again and again and again. The third time he came back, he broke them, and he was going to put them in his pocket. And I, ha I was watching you. I said, this was so cool. I said, not in your pocket. Pay for them first. He goes, I mean, it was, it was awesome. He stuck them he stuck him on two pegs and walked out the door. And at any rate, um, so this little boy, little boy, it looked like he was going to put some in his pocket and walk out the door. A clerk watched the boy for a long time and finally spoke to him. Looks like you're trying to take some candy, the clerk said. The little boy said, you're wrong, mister. I'm trying not to. <laughs> the answer to this situation for him, stay out of the candy aisle. The clear application here is that this would have worked for the Israelites centuries before. It will work for the Corinthians in Paul's time, and it will work. I don't want to be pragmatic or, 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 you know, word of faith garbage about this, but the fact is the Holy Spirit is there for you every day when you're struggling with testing, and He will give you a way of, a way of escape. You need to pray. You need to trust God. Go to the Word and spend time there. This is the power of the gospel, the power of grace, and the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to make us conform to the image of His Son, to remove the dross, to purify the gold of your faith, and make you like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that will be like? We'll never be what Jesus is, but we'll, we will be like Him. We will be similar. Can you imagine? No more sin. No more worries. No more. You won't even want to. It won't occur to you. It's going to be wonderful. So the answer, we've gone through those. Any questions? Any comments? Verse 14. And this one, I love these short verses when they broke them up. I don't know. At any rate, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, Fresh from his encouragement that there are no secret individual temptations that God will, there are no such thing as secret individual uh, unique temptations, and that God will always provide a way, uh, the way of escape from temptation. Paul speaks to the Corinthians as beloved children. He calls him beloved. Therefore, my beloved, my precious, my children, my, my special ones, flee from idolatry. This is the way of escape from temptation uh, of idolatry. Do not walk away. Do not ignore it. Run. Flee. Remember what Joseph did? He didn't say, uh, ma'am, when she grabbed him. He'd say, ma'am, you really shouldn't do this. He knew what was going on. And I would, I would allege that he knew about himself being a man and how things could have start a rolling stone effect to, to undermine resolve. He didn't take that. He didn't take a chance. He bolted from the room. He ran. That's what Paul's advice is here. 
This is the way of escape from the temptation of idolatry. Do not walk away. Do not ignore it. Run from it. What is idolatry? Simply put, it's, uh, it's not just a, a bowing down and burning incense to some image. It is having any false god, whether it is an object, an idea, a philosophy, a habit, an occupation, a sport, a person, a relationship, or any such thing. I'd stop my list there, but there are other things you could put in the list. It can be a material thing, a mythical or supernatural being. It can be anything to which one looks for final security or fulfillment. In the book of Job, and I, I've read the book of Job. I don't remember reading this, but it's there, so I must have skipped over it. Um, in, in the book of Job, Job <laughs> gives a very good description of some of the things that can be a false god. Job 31, 24 through 28. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon uh, going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand and, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment. For I would have denied God above. To put my trust, to put my faith in the moon and the stars, the sun, to put it in money, especially he's talking about money, it's denying God. Simply put, it is the worship of anything but the true God. As in the scripture section, Job, the worship of material wealth, in this scripture section, I should say, the worship of material wealth is idolatry. If that's where your security is, you've got a problem. That's idolatry. There are actually quite a few ways idolatry. There are actually quite a few ways that idolatry manifests itself. When we misconstrue the character of God, we are living in idolatry. I would allege or stipulate that many modern what matter, what passes for many many modern church services are full of idolatry because they're worshiping the people and the process or whatever, and not the God of heaven. If we worship the true God in the wrong way, that is idolatry. When we come up with our own method of worship that is extra-biblical or even unbiblical, we are committing idolatry. If our forms and our rituals are substitutes for the worship that is described and prescribed in Scripture, it is idolatry. After Moses had gone up the mountain and come back down and Aaron had constructed the golden calf, they alleged that they were worshiping Yahweh through that calf. They had bowed down to it, Go, uh, Aaron had constructed it, they had bowed down to it, they said that this would be the worship of God, Adonai, Jehovah. This was idolatry even though they named the name of God. God chose not to represent himself by an image and he instructed everyone who ever followed not to worship an idol, not to worship an image. So whenever the, whenever the Israelites attempted to create an image of God, they were committing idolatry. Deuteronomy 4, 14 through 19. The Lord commanded me at that time, Moses said, to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male 
or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish in the water that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the known, the whole heaven. Worshiping some other type of creation is idolatry. Genesis is history. Genesis 1 is history. Genesis 2 is history. Ignoring those and substituting the God of evolution is idolatry. It's very simple. You are worshiping something other than the Creator when you worship a different way in which He decided to create the universe. He said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. I don't... You, you, when we name it something else, we may sound scientifically scientific. We may even use far-reaching formulas that only people with 268-point IQs can solve, but they're just justifying very, very mathematically idolatry. Worshiping angels is idolatry. Mark, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. And there are people in professing Christian churches that do far more in their service to angels than they do for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's idolatry. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Matthew 4.10, Colossians 2.18. Paul said, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen. Those are some of the most horrifying ways to promote idolatry is when someone gives more credence to his vision than the Word of God. That's idolatry. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Revelation 22, 8 and 9. And John, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down in worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, do, do not do that. Get up. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of the brethren. I put in the word get up. Sorry. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Paul, I mean, it would have been amazing to see this creature, glorious, incredible creature that could probably with one swing of the sword destroy the entire Egyptian army, giving him revelation after revelation, and he fell at his feet. And the angels, I can just picture the angels going, get up. Don't do that. You worship God only. Only God. Worshiping demons is idolatry. Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Revelation 9, 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, speaking of the end times, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. They didn't repent. They kept worshiping demons. There's a point in Revelation um, where they actually say, pull the rocks down on us. We don't want to acknowledge God. And the idols of gold and of silver, of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see, hear, nor walk. Worshiping the dead is idolatry. And I didn't know that they do this in what are sometimes considered mainstream, quote unquote. Yeah. This is some, I didn't put it in here to put the definition, but this is some saint. And he's got a weird name like Ungla or something. And he did something really cool a couple hundred years ago, and they're worshiping his corpse. Saint something or rather. 
Uh, I should have had it so you'd know what it, who it was. Worshiping the dead, Psalm 106, 28 and 29. They joined themselves also to Baal pure and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. In Deuteronomy 18, 10 and 11. There shall be found among you, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or who uses divination, or who practices witchcraft, or who one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. The reason I put that whole section in there is that's a list. Aren't all those things bad? Worshiping the dead is not biblical. First Timothy two, five through six. For there is one God. And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. That's the one you worship. Having surpassing loyalty for in our hearts for anything other than God is loyalty. Or excuse me, is idolatry. <laughs> Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Colossians 1 3, 1 through 3, 1 through 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then to finish this up, covetousness is idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, I want what you have. It's more important to me. I'm an idolater. If I, if I covet what you have. Has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3.5 Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Lest we have any question. Paul is warning his beloved Corinthians that though they might partake of the meat that was offered to an idol, to participate in any way in the temple activities in order to get the food would be a very dangerous undertaking. To enter in those temples in order to partake of the meat was flirting with sin and his encourage, indeed his command, is to flee. Get your meat at the market. In the original there is an article before the word idolatry denoting the idolatry. He is advocating that they flee from the very things they have been doing. To finish this up, I speak, he says, as to wise men. You judge what I say. What did the Bereans do? Sure, Paul, whatever you say. Sure, Cornell, whatever you say. Please don't do that. Check it out. He says, I speak as to wise men, and I believe I'm speaking to wise people. And I know that you will judge what I say. The Corinthians prided themselves on their wisdom. Here Paul appeals to that wisdom. He is convinced that as they submit to the Scripture and to the Holy Spirit, they will be able to judge both the wisdom and the intent of what he is saying to them. He's not trying to limit their freedom. He's trying to protect them from backsliding. And so for us today, as we go through the difficulties in our lives, one of the things that we can do to, to maintain, to be useful, and to get through them is to remember those truths. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He will always provide a way of escape. He will refine your gold and make it pure. Why? Because he loves you. He loved the Corinthians, and that's why Paul could call them beloved. And he loves us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not 
abandon us when it seems like you have, but in fact you are more probably closer than ever. We need but turn to you through your word, through prayer. And Lord, as we, as we seek your face and see you for the great almighty sovereign of the universe that you truly are, it will strengthen us. Your Holy Spirit will give us, through your word, the ability, the tools, whatever we should call them, to bring glory to you. For that is what we choose to do, what we want to do, what you have given for us to do. You have given for us in eternity past the works that we will perform that will bring glory to your Son, and we want to do that. We'll thank you for the difficulties we've been through, and we know you will bring us through the difficulties that are coming. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.